But I think it really is about making sure that um, our requirements as a regulator really do make it as easy and straightforward as possible for people with the skills and experience that we want to have in our health system to actually be able to get registered and to practice. We acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past and present. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger. So how do we attract more health practitioners to come and work in Australia? At a time of great stress on our health and our aged care workforce, this question is is really exercising the minds of many policymakers, health services, and regulators. Can we actually make it easier for a practitioner trained overseas to meet all of the legal requirements to work in Australia while still ensuring patient safety? In this episode, we're going to hear from people who might be able to answer these questions. And we'll also talk about why it's important to attract a diverse, qualified, and appropriate health workforce. So our focus for this episode is on the experiences of health practitioners who choose to move to Australia to live and work. We hope it will help us to better understand some of the steps involved in changing countries for practitioners who choose to continue their career here and and how the process might be simplified. We'll also talk about some of the legal requirements on the regulator for ensuring a safe and appropriate workforce and the benefits that diversity brings to our health system. I think it's particularly good timing to be discussing this topic. The national cabinet, as in the form that includes the prime minister, the premiers and chief ministers, well, recognizing the important contribution that overseas trained health practitioners make to the Australian health system, they recently set up an independent review of the regulatory settings of overseas trained health practitioners who seek to work here. Now, by regulatory settings, we mean the requirements that those health practitioners must meet in order to work in Australia. So the review will complement activities that OPERA is already undertaking to, to improve the assessment process. Some of these activities include increasing our staffing in the area of registering international health professionals, as well as simplifying the information that's provided to applicants. So as you can probably tell already, there is a lot happening in this space right now. Fortunately, I have three fabulous guests with me today who have very relevant experience dealing with this system from three quite different angles. So first, Dr. Rekha Mangalore is a general medicine and infectious diseases physician. Dr. Renee Kelsall is chief medical officer at Bascos Health and Helen Townley is National Director, Policy and Accreditation at OPERA. Welcome. Can you each start by introducing yourself, what you do, and maybe your connection to this topic of our migrant health workforce? Rekha? I'm Rekha. I'm a physician, an infectious diseases and general medicine physician. I work in Melbourne at a metropolitan hospital. This topic is really close to my heart because I have lived experience. Uh, I am an international medical graduate or an overseas trained doctor, um, IMD, as we call it. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to today's discussions. Thank you. And Renee? 
Hi everyone, uh, my name is Renee Kelsell. I'm a geriatrician and also the Chief Medical Officer at Bass Coast Health, um, which is a small sub-regional hospital in rural Victoria. Um, and I'm also looking forward to having this conversation um, through my experience with recruitment into the rural health um, workforce. Fabulous. And Helen, how about you? Hello, I'm Helen Townley, National Director of Policy and Accreditation at ARPRA. So my interface with this issue is really in relation to the aspect of my role, which involves working with national boards um, to set the standards that practitioners need to meet to uh, become and to stay registered. And like everyone, I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Excellent. Well, Helen, we might start with you first. How about before we sort of get into the full conversation, maybe you could start us off with Talking us through some of the broad steps, a bit, you know, a bit of an overview of what's required of a practitioner from another country to be able to practice here in Australia. Essentially, our national law that we work within sets out requirements that all health practitioners have to meet to become registered in Australia, regardless of where they qualify. Um, and in relation to qualifications for registration, there are different pathways to uh, meet that requirement, depending on whether you qualified here or overseas. Then there are requirements that applicants have to meet in terms of their suitability for registration. And that means that an applicant has got the personal and the professional attributes for um, practice in Australia. That involves their um, health, their criminal history, and things like their um, English language skills. It involves looking at their regulatory history in other jurisdictions. And they also need to meet um, the registration standards that boards have set for practitioners to become registered. And they include um, an English language skills registration standard, but also standards around recent practice and um, making sure that practitioners have practiced um, recently when they're um, about to embark on practice in Australia. So the process itself is, uh, as you would probably all expect, um, it involves completing an application form and providing lots of copies of documentation, um, you know, certified copies of various documents. And sometimes um, applicants have to arrange for documents to be provided directly to us. Um, and um, of course, providing proof of identity and so on. So that's a very general overview, but that's that's the basic steps that practitioners need to meet. So it sounds like it's not something you do in an afternoon. No, look, I know that our colleagues in registration work very hard to make the process as um, smooth as it can be. And that's certainly something that we keep under active review. We certainly don't just set those requirements and those processes. That's a set and forget approach, if you like. We're actually always thinking about how can we make the process easier and make the information that we provide to applicants easier and more accessible. So um, it's it's always going to be you know something where we're looking to do the best we can, but build on where we are right now. Thanks, Helen. Rebecca, I want to hear about your experience of, um, of becoming a doctor here in Australia, but maybe you could start a bit before that with your a bit of your personal background and um, where you trained um, and then what brought you here. Okay, um, so I am from India originally. I grew up, I was born and raised in a beautiful coastal town on the uh, south of India called Mangalo, like my name. Um, and uh, I pretty much spent my entire formative years and my, including my undergraduate medical studies, that is the MBBS degree that we do to qualify as doctors. Um, so I did that in Mangalore um, and um, I went to a college there called Father Muller's Medical College where I got my undergraduate degree. It's a, uh, an old hospital established in the 1880s. 
uh, initially set up by the Jesuits to look after leprosy and uh, most marginalized you know, uh, people from society, uh, mental health and those issues. And then it's, it's now a big uh, specialist hospital. So I was very lucky to train there. Um, subsequently moved to Bangalore, which is um, the capital of the state that I'm from. Uh, did my general and acute care medicine training there. And uh, finally migrated to Australia um, by way of marriage, really. My husband was working here, so migrated here in the midst of my specialist training um, and uh, have worked across two states in Australia. I worked in Queensland and Brisbane um, and here in Melbourne, worked across multiple levels of hospitals between the two states. Um, so yeah, that's a bit about, you know, where I come from. Um, yeah. What did you expect the experience of um, being a doctor here, but also about becoming a doctor here? What did you expect it to be like? And then maybe what was it like? Um, I expected great things. <laughs> um, I was looking forward because, you know, when you are, um, say, a few years out, not, not, not many years out, when you're a few years out from your basic medical degree, you're very confident. And uh, you feel very competent and you really want to show off your skills. Um, and India is, um, when you train in India, you get to see a diverse range of diseases and um, conditions. So you're really, you really feel equipped to be, to work anywhere, to be honest. So I was looking forward to working in a developed country and I'd heard a lot about the healthcare system and the way the public hospitals worked. And uh, being from a largely privatized um, healthcare system, I was really looking forward to having this, you know, different experience working in a public hospital system. So I expected great things. Um, and I think I, I did see great things, but it took some time. <laughs> um, uh, the reality is that it's incredibly hard for everything. Uh, as, an, as an IMG or international medical graduate, I think in, in many ways, I had finished my AMC written exams even before I got here. And the reason for that was my sister was insistent that I come here even before I met my husband. She has been in Australia for 20 years now. She works as a credit advisor and she wanted me to move here. And I was kind of sitting on the fence back then but just to appease her, I sat my AMC clinic written exams. Australian Medical Council is the sort of the registration. You know, you need to have those exams. You need to pass those exams to then get your general registration to work as a doctor uh, amongst one of those pathways that Helen was talking about. So um, the AMC um, exams are a requirement for international medical graduates. And there are two parts to it. There's the written exam and a clinical exam. I sat my clinic, written exams and passed them, and then I migrated to Australia. So I thought, yeah, yeah, I've already done one bit, so I'm I'm going to be this second bit's going to be easy. Uh, unfortunately, the truth is that you do not get a clinical exam spot uh, that easily, and your the preference of employers back then in 2007 was that you would be qualified for registration when you get a job. So I actually didn't get a job. So I had all these amazing skills that I wanted to show off and um, I actually didn't have a job and no one was interested in employing me. Uh, I did not have a registration and even to get a limited registration or a temp, you know, sort of a provisional registration, which means that I work under conditions, um, I had to still have a job to show. Uh, back then, I think it was the, it was not APRA, it was um, Victorian Medical Practitioners Registry or uh, yeah, so um, I had to show them that I had a job and I did not have a job. And um, yeah, so that was a bit um, disappointing. 
yeah, I can imagine that would be hard. Why don't we jump to Renee and she can, because um, I'll be interested to hear for Renee as an employer or a potential employer, whether or not this sort of what you're hearing from Rebecca resonates with you still in your experience. And if you want to talk about, tell us a bit about that. Absolutely. So I think on a couple of levels, so coming in to the seat, my chief medical officer role only three years ago as a geriatrician, I had no insight into how difficult it was for an international medical graduate to actually just get a, even a basic junior medical staff role, let alone a specialist pathway or all the other complex pathways. And so for me learning my new role, I have to say it is a minefield that you feel like when you first step into it, you almost need a degree to understand all of the different pathways and forms and processes. And that's not to devalue that because it is absolutely required to provide safe quality care in the Australian healthcare sector. But it was just a huge learning curve for me being an English language, first language person who had graduated in Australia, I have struggled initially to understand all of the pathways. So amazing job understanding it and persevering, Rebecca, because I think that there's just been so many doctors I've come across that have got disheartened, felt like they are not valued as much as the Australian graduates, that people just look straight on past them. I find um, sitting here as a, as a chief medical officer now that the um, value that international medical graduates bring and how grateful they are for the opportunity, I just find it so rewarding to have interviews and see how excited and determined they are to enter into the Australian healthcare sector. So I, I'm like, Rekha, I could go on and on about my experience with this process because I think that it it is so long and so involved and it, it can lead to demoralisation of really well-trained health professionals from international medical schools. So Renee, in your experience, is it easier for, for some people than for others to get registered? Oh, absolutely it is. I think if you come and you've got that recency of practice, meaning that you meet the requirements set by our national governing boards that says you've been practicing medicine, that you've done the AMC part one, AMC part two, and your English test, then you're going to get a far easier transition than if you haven't done all of those things, let alone adding the step of a visa to that. So then there's the whole mindful of immigration and the visas. Like that is a whole nother thing to consider. So I think that pathway seems to be straightforward versus if you come in as a specialist and you're coming under a specialist um, pathway that's totally different because then you've got to meet the requirements of the actual um, specialty college as well which have another 30 page application that you have to fill out and justify your qualifications so uh, yeah I, I think it's extraordinarily difficult for all applicants but there's a reason for that so I, I don't want to sound like I'm being negative because I obviously understand the governance behind it as well yeah so you understand that that there's a reason for it but also acknowledging that um, it's very complex and maybe um, really presents barriers for people who to work who we want to have work here. For sure, definitely agree. I have been talking to various IMGs um, since we decided to uh, record this. And uh, one of them told me it's the Bermuda Triangle between APRA, AMC, RA, you know, the college. So the AMC and the college, whichever college, and then APRA and the immigration, it's like a Bermuda Triangle and they die in it. And a lot of people said that it could be simplified. 
Okay, so Helen, with the challenge of the Bermuda Triangle, uh, do you, do you want to jump in and uh, and do you have any comments about how you can help us to understand, I suppose, understand broadly how standards are set for practitioners and why they're important, and maybe some of what you see is um, some of your thoughts about what you've heard. Probably just to respond initially and say, you know, I I feel enormous. Um, empathy for people as R Renee was saying who have persevered through this um through these challenges because um practitioners working in our healthcare system regardless of where they come from are in essential to um, providing the health services that our communities need and every every one of them is important and we absolutely um, should be looking to make these processes as easy as possible and when I say we, I, I, I'm speaking beyond the national scheme to um, immigration in terms of visa requirements and, and every aspect of the system. And it certainly sounds like, you know, there are some opportunities and I'm talking about um, outside my own, the sphere of my own work, but it certainly sounds like even in the space of integrated information and, and those sorts of things, um, that, that there are some opportunities there. And um, speaking personally, I'm certainly very keen to do whatever I can in um, the area I do work in to make it as easy as possible for people because, you know, as, as we've been talking about, the um, internationally qualified health practitioners are fundamental to um, delivering care to our communities. So in terms of um, the talking about standards and how we sort of set standards, I'm conscious that a lot of what we've been talking about is qualification pathways, and that's not actually the space that I um, specifically work in. But I'm really happy to talk about, say, one of the other standards, which is one that I know uh, many internationally qualified health practitioners do grapple with, and that's um, the English language skills registration standards. A number of standards are, um, are required to be set by national boards by our national law. So that comes back to that discussion we were having right at the outset, which is about um, our law sets certain requirements that practitioners have to meet, and they are directed at the sort of safety and quality of care. And um, English language skills registration standards are one of those, and um, the law says every board needs to have one. Um, and the law also says that when boards develop these standards, they have to consult widely. And so there is an absolute a requirement that goes well beyond an expectation that there will be um, many voices heard in that process of um, developing standards. And, and we uh, try um, to get the widest range of input we can when we're working with boards on um, at this point in the scheme, reviewing those standards rather than setting completely new ones. So, you know, we do a range of things. Um, when we're developing standards, we usually kind of commission some research. Um, some we do international benchmarking to sort of look at, you know, how do the requirements that might be set by boards here compare to overseas? Um, what do what does our own data tell us about what what would be a sort of a safe standard to set? Um, and then we put forward. Um, with boards some options that they might then go out and consult about and then we invite input from um, the public um, and other stakeholders into those those standards and we do that you know in a public way that's um, advertised on our website. We look at all of the feedback that we we get um, with national boards um, to determine what proposals will there be then be put to health ministers because boards while boards actually develop the standards ministers have to approve them and when boards are doing this work, as well as when ministers are, are looking at approving standards, they've got to take into account the objectives and the principles in our law. And whilst the paramount consideration is public protection, there are other really important objectives, including access to health services, 
and having a flexible and sustainable health workforce, as well as being transparent, accountable and fair. So these are all kind of really important factors that we try um, and build into all of that work. Renee, we've been talking about some of the challenges for people um, coming to Australia, or maybe some of the challenges even for the system here in trying to facilitate um, uh, migrant practitioners working in our system. But so, so sort of the question might come, well, why, why do it? Why is it important to have migrant practitioners working in our health system in Australia? I think diversity to a workplace is key. I think we all have something to learn and we all have something to teach regardless of what level of our training we are, regardless of what our underlying background, um, our nationality, our culture. I think we just have so much to share with each other. And to give some personal experience, so I remember a couple of years ago um, when I stepped into this role and I first had my first group of interviews to interview for a general stream hospital medical officer and we had 40 different applicants. They were all international medical graduates. Um, and going through that selection process and then interviewing these graduates and then appointing four of them at that time and then initially seeing what it was like for their first ever job in Australia and how it was so overwhelming and the amazing experience it was to be able to mentor those junior doctors and then actually have teach me a lot as well, not just about medicine, but about life and culture. It was just such a rewarding experience. And now we've just expanded that program into different areas within our organisation. So I can't speak highly enough about having a diverse um, working environment. And I just so many positives. Sure, there's negatives about the process. Sure, there's negatives about the integration to start with because it's a big culture shock and change, but the positives far outweigh all of that. And I presume you could speak also about some of the positives that you see for patients as well. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. They're endless. The The diversity is endless, how it touches patients, other staff members, educational opportunities, all of those things. Absolutely. And for patients who, for instance, um, really benefit from seeing a practitioner who might have similar um, life or cultural um, experiences and background to them. I think it's important for the health workforce to reflect the community and the community is diverse. Uh, you know, I, I think when we saw the recent ABS um, uh, statistics, about 30% of Australia is uh, made of migrant uh, overseas-born population, and uh, about, I think, nearly 48% had a parent that was born overseas. So, yeah, so, you know, I think it's important to see see uh, yourself being represented in all walks of uh, life and particularly in a service provision industry which is like ours um, I think there's better there's in, there's an improved trust in the healthcare system and I think that has other benefits because once there's more trust then there is more health informing practice which means that people will be more engaged in their health and that could lead to a lot of preventative medicine happening where you know people Basically, it's better for the health of the population that um, the health service uh, services. So that's really important. Um, and then you've got to see it to be it, right? Uh, you might be able to inspire other people from similar backgrounds to be what you are. Um, um, so that's a good thing as well from an education perspective and generally from a, you know, advancement of the whole community as well as the you know the the country uh, perspective so i think that's really another important thing that i think is that's why diversity is important and then like um renee said you know it just brings all these different perspectives together inside within them within the health service 
different people from different backgrounds just think differently. And it's like this melting pot of ideas, which is, I think, really inspiring to be uh, in the midst of. So it has innumerable benefits. The challenge is that initial bit when you are an international medical graduate, but it's, it is it is very disheartening. You know, I don't want to take this conversation too far away from the challenges. I think we really need to have a, everyone needs to think about the challenges. And the reason why I bring it back to the challenges is that we know that the Australian government wants to have more international medical graduates um, in the country, but I think it's really important to focus on the people who are already here because their lives are not better yet. They're not where I am yet. Yes. So you mean the doctors who are already in Australia, but still struggling within that kind of complicated space? I think we really need, I think we need attention on people who are all still struggling in the system. And it took me um, from 2007 till 2014 uh, of struggling to get somewhere. Um, and then, yes, uh, just, just like how Renee said, you know, once you're in the system and once you progress through training, it's a different story. There are different challenges, but it's a different story. You can still, you manage that I think there are enough people within the system that need to be catered for before adding on to the um, the the pile, if you like, or adding on to the numbers uh, with more IMGs when we don't quite have a system that talks to each other. That's so true. So many of these applicants that I've interviewed have been waiting six or seven years and keep returning back to their primary home country to keep their residency of practice up to then come back and then to try again. And they keep persevering, but just that that must be so disheartening to spend so long after feeling like you're at the peak of your career and you're feeling like you're invincible and then to be told sorry you're not going to get a job I think the de-skilling that happens as well it's I, I remember that feeling you know when I was a HMO a hospital medical officer like a junior medical doctor um, and I had all I knew how to do the specialist skill because I had learned it in my training in India because I was already doing a specialist pathway in India and um, I could see someone else trying to do it and I knew I could do it better than them but you're completely hamstrung by the fact that you can't do it and then you get de-skilled, right? You, because you never get a chance. You don't get an opportunity to do it. And then you spend years and years in the system trying to find your way and you lose that skill. You could actually potentially contribute more if your pathway was a little bit shorter, a little bit quicker, things happened. The bureaucracy was not that hard, that, you know, that much paperwork. Every time you move a health service, you need to submit all those paperwork documents again. It's just repetition and repetition. It really disheartens people. And I've spoken to a lot of international medical graduates in the last one week. They are not happy, but they love they love their work and they love the patients and they they really feel they're contributing. But they feel in return their career progression is not there, so there is no return to them. And I think we really need to value that because I think we need to invest in career progression of any doctor in Australia, or we're talking about doctors specifically here. But we need to invest in that career progression as well. So, Renee, RECA uh, has challenged us to think about those internationally qualified practitioners who are here in the country but are unable to work or are unable to work to the level that they're qualified. Do you have any examples of the realities of meeting the requirements of registration for people who are in that situation? 
So I think so another personal example. So I have this beautiful um, junior medical officer who worked as a, um, a physician's assistant in Queensland when she first arrived in Australia. And then she went on to do a Bachelor of Nursing because she couldn't get into medicine. So we're talking six years down the track now. And then she worked as a registered nurse. And then no one would hire her in a junior medical officer role. So finally, she got an opportunity to work at Bass Coast Health, but she was told by the registry bodies that she had no recency of practice in medicine because she'd been doing nursing and she'd been doing physician's assistant. So I think this is an opportunity for us to reconsider what we say see is recency of practice because a physician's assistant is essentially just like a junior medical officer in the skills that they're doing, but that wasn't recognised. And so this poor doctor has been languishing in the system for 10 years before she's been given an opportunity. But really she was already a, a consultant or a senior medical officer in her home country and so then she's had to start again and redevelop all of this so I think we as a country need to look at other ways that we can engage these doctors that are or, or other staff that are already in Australia in other pathways that are a little bit outside of the square that allows them to get recency of practice that so this transition doesn't take 10 years because that's all, that's so much putting your life on hold it is that's right and and I, I, Helen I will throw it to you and but, but before I do I wonder Renee it sounds like you can see that while there's there is a role um, that for the regulator for uh, for the medical boards it sounds like that you see there's also um, some barriers from or some opportunities for other organizations to maybe think differently about this as well Definitely. And I think physician's assistance is a model that works beautifully in the United States of America, where we have this transition program. And it is an area that could easily be um, utilised to supplement our workforce, which is under such duress at the moment. Um, and then it could be a transition. And it, it, then you could say to these doctors, after you've done one year of physician's assistant, your career trajectory is you enter into this hospital that we have a link with, that then you go down these pathways. So they don't get hopeless and helpless, that there's no light at the end of this tunnel for them. Yeah, I agree. I think there needs to be some sort of uh, investment um, by the government and by health services themselves to provide some sort of a pathway. Because, you know, if I hadn't met the people I met along my journey, I probably would have still been a hospital officer somewhere or maybe now got through some form of training. I would not have been an ID physician here if I hadn't met the right people. And I was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time and be very persistent. And I, I still had some fire left in me. I, I, I must say I was dwindling, but um, I think I just had the right enablers. And they were all, um, you know, established Australian trained doctors. Uh, but um, I was just lucky. Helen. Any thoughts? I'm not expecting you to solve all these problems, but do you have any reflections on what has been said? Both um, Rekha and Renee have just really reinforced um, the challenges for these applicants. And when we know that the um, health system is so challenged currently and so desperately in need of um, committed, um, skilled practitioners, I think the um, personal stories that we've we've heard and the experiences really reinforce the importance of us regularly looking at um, the requirements that boards and boards have set and looking at you know what are there ways that we can improve them are there ways that we can um, work towards getting better outcomes and um, 
balancing these factors in the best possible way. I mean, we've all, I don't think there's any argument here that um, having uh, requirements for safe care is important, but are there other ways that we can get there that we're not currently offering? And um, certainly I feel inspired by the stories here today to consider that as much as I can in my own work. Rebecca. Just easing the process. I know it can be easier than this. You don't have to get workplace uh, workplace assessments every time you change a health service or you don't have to fill in the same documents and paying, you know, dollars and dollars and dollars for the same things over and over again. So I think there are a lot of doubling up uh, waste of time uh, pr procedures that happen. And I can imagine why they've come into place, but I think they are not necessary if one person has already been through that path once and has been assessed as competent in one health service. So I, I, I guess there's ways of making this easier. It just needs some impetus from somewhere. And because it is so divided between so many different regulatory bodies, no one's taking governance for that issue. I think that's what's happening. No one argues that, I think it's absolutely important to have safe medical practitioners anywhere in the world, but something needs to be done to unify the process. They're saying we need to get some good heads together um, to work on this problem like the three I've got here with me. And if we know that our health system needs this diversity to thrive, if we know that it values and benefits from it, how do we ensure then that Australia has the, a safe and um, diverse health workforce? And I'll start with you, Helen. I think it really is about making sure that um, our requirements as a regulator really do make it as easy and straightforward as possible for people with the skills and experience that we want to have in our health system to actually be able to get registered and to practice. Thanks. Renee? So I think there's some innovations that we can do and there's some more engagement, people like Rekka to get up there and have her voice and to say what needs changing so that we're not just deciding policy unilaterally to the people that are actually having to navigate it. And I think there's innovations like, like we do with other um, minority groups in Australia where there's a set amount of places in each tertiary hospital that are for international medical graduates. And so you don't have to have this fight with the Australian graduates for positions so why can't we do something like that where it becomes a, a regulatory thing for all health services to employ X number of international nurses and medical graduates? So we maintain diversity, but we also make it a bit easier and less demoralising for everyone. So I think there's just so many different great opportunities to strengthen our workforce, maintain diversity, and also not only that, but our health services are under so much distress and duress at the moment. I mean, we have to do something immediately, not in 10 years' time when we get another policy out, but we need to do something immediately to, to fix this problem. Thanks, Renee. And Rekka, how about you? I agree with uh, Helen and Renee. I think, one, it needs to be easier. It needs to be more transparent and clear. I agree that tertiary hospitals can do a lot more. I think the... Um, we need to know why people are in the country, right? Or why we want to get IMGs in the country. If we want to service rural areas, then we need to be very clear and transparent about it. Because when you come into the country, you have certain expectations and you think, oh, I'd like to be a specialist in X. Now, the specialist in X may have the uh, services available only in a tertiary hospital in a metropolitan city. 
Uh, but if the expectation is that IMGs work rurally, then that should be very clearly outlined so that they know that, okay, when they come in, um, you know, you're going to be working in a rural service. So they may choose the specialist pathway, you know, like general and acute care medicine or um, something that is suitable for, a, uh, for a, a practice in rural areas. So I think that needs to be really clear. And then there needs to be a pathway for that. So you really need, you, and I agree, you need to have a tertiary hospital um, kind of having some responsibility because they have the resources available to actually train people to become that. And then once people are happy in a workforce, once people are satisfied with their jobs, they will do things. And if, if the aim was to always go and work in a rural practice, they will do it if, they, if their pathway is easy. If they're frustrated the whole time and they're unhappy with a lot of things, then they may not want to do certain things. You know, it, it just depends on how you would engage a cohort of people, I think. So I think it needs to be easier. It needs to be transparent. And I, I agree with some amount of affirmative action or, you know, something where you have a spot, a space for someone you've wanted and invited into the country saying, yes, we we want you. Uh, but then, sorry, we don't have jobs. Or sorry, the, the pathway is hard, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think that our, our conversation today has really highlighted, well, one, one doctor's experience um, of sort of packing up a life to bring your skills and your experience to Australia. And obviously, we're glad you made that decision, Rekha. <laughs> Hopefully, you are too now, some years later. I am very happy now. I feel um, I've got the job satisfaction I need. I mean, there's lots more to achieve, but I am happy now. It, and I'm glad that I stuck to it. But I wish that someone else will have an easier path than mine. I think that all three of you have not only reminded us of the benefits, but also some of the complications involved for both employers and the regulator. And of course, for migrant practitioners who not only have the requirements of opera and the boards, but also other equally important requirements such as visas, which sit with the federal government. So what's important? Sounds like from what we've heard today, clear expectations, smooth processes, transparent requirements, and an opportunity and a need for regulators, policymakers, and employers to all step up to play their part more fully. I think this conversation has really highlighted how important it is to hear firsthand from the experience of people navigating the whole process, including their views on how we, the regulator, can improve it. So, Given the benefits we know that diversity brings to our health system and the need we have for qualified health practitioners, working out these issues sounds like a challenge worth taking. Thank you for joining us, Renee, Rekha, and Helen. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this conversation, and I'm very happy to have more of them in the future and to continue advocating for this very worthy cause. Thank you for having me. It's been good to talk about my experiences. Thanks. It's been a great discussion and I'm very happy to have been part of it. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to Taking Care. If you have a story that you would like to share, please contact us. We are really keen to hear. Also, if you have feedback or an idea for a future episode, you can find us, well, our email, not really us, at communications at opera.gov.au. We have an ever-growing catalog of past episodes, so do have a listen. See you next time.